introduce us to um, something that I think all of us feel and resonate with, which is how our messiness, how our messiness comes together with, uh, with the gospel of Christ in a way that is both challenging and beautiful at the same time. Um, so let me pray for us and we'll get started. Let's pray. God of truth, we believe that you have not only spoken, but that you continue to speak. Reveal your word for all of us and for each of us on this day. Open our hearts to receive it. Enlighten our minds to fathom it. Direct our souls to treasure it. By your Holy Spirit, may the reading and interpretation of scripture be for us the very word of God. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. I don't know about you, but uh, one of the ways that I pacify my road rage is by listening to the radio, very specifically talk radio. So music really doesn't do it. In fact, music can amp me up. So I, I really love to listen to NPR because it engages the left, left side of my brain, and the right side of my brain is kind of subdued when I'm on the road. This is really healthy for a whole lot of people out there. And... I, 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 this is, I've been, this practice, this is spiritual practice, listening to NPR for me, this has been going on for a few years, and now I, I geek out on NPR. I mean, I really, really love it, and I think it's so fascinating. Sometimes it's distracting enough that I need to refocus on what I'm doing driving, but anytime in the car, I have it on, and uh, NPR, they do this thing called Science Friday. I don't know if you know Science Friday, but this is, this is pretty cool stuff, and uh, one time they're interviewing a research psychologist from Brown University who had written a book called That's Disgusting, Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion. And this is the kind of thing that I'm like turning up. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm a middle school director um, at my, my host, my home church, First Pres Burlingame. So, you know, when I, when there's a like connection between the world of middle schoolers and NPR, I'm, I'm, you know, here goes the volume and here goes my focus. That's disgusting. Perfect, I think. So what this interview, um, the question that this interview was around was the question, when it comes to things we're attracted to or repulsed by, like is that nature or nurture, right? Is that something that uh, like is ingrained or is it something that we learn? And, And what this research psychologist from Brown University found is that except, except for the case of bitterness, which will instinctively spit out due to the high level of alkaloids, which signal to our brain poison. So we'll spit out something bitter. A baby, an infant will spit out something bitter. Except for that, the vast majority of things that we're attracted to or repulsed by, these things are culturally learned, right? And so it explains some things. It explains why people on the other side of the world would never eat blue cheese, but we spread it out all over our salads. It explains that. It also explains why um, we mask our natural body odors with floral fragrances. (laughs) But get this, in Elizabethan times, a lover would would carry a peeled apple in her armpit. And she would carry it there, and she would give it to her partner to sniff in her absence. And if you're like me, you're thinking, that's disgusting. (laughs) But why? 
<laughs> Why? Like, this is stuff we've learned to recognize as completely repulsive, which I agree. By the way, that, that's my, that's where I stand. That's gross. But yet, it's culturally learned. And, and it, it, got, it got me thinking. This is fascinating stuff. I love Science Friday. Um, it got me thinking about how, in my own life, I've been also socially conditioned. Socially conditioned to respond to people in ways that mirror experiences in my past. I, I hope you can relate. That, um, you know, we're faced with a whole host of different people in the workplace. We're faced with a whole host of different people in the school. Um, people in our, in our own family and people at just any day, every day in any time situations. And so much of the time our response is about some past experience, something we've learned that calls into question probably who we are. Especially those responses to people that we get that, that we would define as not right, that we would define as, as difficult <laughs> or disgusting or sick and twisted, maybe. Those kinds of responses that we have to people are most likely socially learned. Sure, in our family, but also, also not just in our family, but also in, um, in relationships that we've had at school, in middle school, in high school, in elementary school, as young adults. All those things, all those ways we react to people, we've, they're, they're embedded in us, right? Because we've learned how to respond to relationship, and they've called into question something about us. Maybe a feeling of inadequacy. Um, maybe uh, feelings of self-doubt. Uh, maybe just our own need for a relationship, but the inability to really fulfill that need. Something in us gets triggered when we have sometimes these responses to people. Just like something gets triggered in us when we uh, think about um, love apples. And something gets triggered for people on the other side of the world when they think about blue cheese. But this is, this is way more serious than, than Love Apples and Blue Cheese, really, because this is about, and this is, this is my confession, right? This is about our sometimes really visceral and outrageous responses to people when something inside of us gets triggered. And I don't know if you've ever stopped yourself after having had a really difficult encounter with a coworker or a spouse or a sibling or even just Joe Schmo on the street, just, just someone who rubbed you the wrong way. Have you ever stopped yourself after going through your mental tirade, right, where you're just like reeling? I don't know if you reel. I reel. Like the situation replays itself in my head over and over and over again. And I, I build up a whole host of retaliatory stingers, right, so that I could like potentially have my personal moment of gotcha glory. Like that's what I do. And, and have you ever stopped yourself in the middle of this process and go, man, I'm one sick and, this is sick and twisted stuff. This emotion and this, this, this mental capacity to spend so much time and energy on this one encounter that for some reason has got you reeling. I mean, that, confession, I've been there. I do that recently. <laughs> And I love that when we, when we open up the scriptures, I love that what we find is not, is not um, a whole host of, of saints, the way we sometimes think of saints as perfect people, but a whole host of, of really messy characters. 
Like, the Bible is filled with people with, like, gargantuan character flaws. And that's, that's good news for someone like me. Because <laughs> I'm like, you know what? It's going to be all right. I got hope. Because <laughs> look at this person. And when we think about the story of David, David is no exception. David is no exception. We've been going through the story of David, and um, if you've been with us the last month, we've started this in October. And the story of David is fascinating because it really is a perfect example of how life is messy and how David is a messy person. David, up to this point in the story, I'm going to take you up to chapter 24 or 25 in Samuel. And up to this point in the story, let me just tell you, we don't know that David has serious character flaws. We might suspect that he has some things to work on. But up to this point, David's been a standout guy. I mean... David has this, if you, if you were here two weeks ago, you remember that Mary talked about how David has this, he has this gargantuan confidence in God that allows him to do things of extreme courage and valor. If you were here last week, you remember that David has this really connected and deep and meaningful friendship with the current king's son. And this, this Jonathan is completely on board. That's David's friend who is the current king's son. And Jonathan is completely on board with David's right and claim to the throne. David is a standout guy. David has slayed Goliath. He's friend with the king's son. And he's really taken the high road on so many occasions. He's had Saul, who's the current king of Israel. He's had Saul in the palm of his hands. Like literally snuck up on him, cut off a piece of his robe. Because Saul, if you don't know this about David and David's story, Saul Saul is, is loco at this point. Saul is crazy. I mean, Saul is like what Blockbuster was to Netflix 10 years ago. David was Netflix. And and Saul is going, he's like, what am I going to do? And at this point, Saul just wants to pit him to a wall with a spear. That's what Saul wants to do because he's had these outrageous fits of jealousy. And yet David, David, knowing full well that it was God who called Saul to, to where he was, instead of killing him, which we had, he had this prime opportunity to do, cut off a piece of his robe and stood across a valley and said, hey, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. I didn't because I know better. I know God has called you. But like call off the chase, Saul. That's what David's done. He has taken the high road. So up to this point in the story, we look at David and we go, wow, there's a guy. No wonder he's going to be king, right? He's a great guy. We all love him. He has this massive following now. He has 600 people, though he's on the run, just following him around. He's got a whole, he's practically got a whole town who's for him and following him and with him as he's getting run down by Saul. But here's the thing, here's the thing that happens in catching you right up to where we are in the story. David encounters a wealthy landowner named Nabal. And let me tell you something. You know Nabal. I promise you do. I know Nabal. Nabal, Nabal's the person at work who you're like, how in the world did they get this position? Like, who hired them? Can I talk to that committee, please? That's Nabal. Or or Nabal's the person at school who you're like, what family raised this person? Why is this person not in jail? That's Nabal. Or, or Nabal's the person next to you in the pew, and you're like, 
how am I related to them? Like, this is conspiracy. <laughs> that's Nabal. That's, and that's the Nabal in David's story when David encounters him. And here's another thing you got to know about Nabal. And the one thing we know about him is that he is filthy rich and that he's married to this intelligent and creative and beautiful woman. And it just goes to show you, even the losers get lucky sometimes. But David needs something from Nabal. See, him and his, his posse, like his 600 people, right, they've been running and they're hungry and they need some R&R. And it just so happens that since Nabal is filthy rich and he's got this whole crew of shepherds who are going to a neighboring town and shearing sheep, which, by the way, in the Older Testament, this is a joyous occasion, a time for celebration, a time to say, hey, God has given us what God has given us. Let's celebrate. So David says, prime opportunity. I've protected this guy's shepherds. He doesn't know it, but I've protected them. I've been a wall to them on the right and to the left. So I'm going to go claim an IOU from Nabal. I'm going to send 10 of my people into Nabal's plantation, and I'm going to ask Nabal to prepare a feast. And when I say feast, I mean it's going to be like a seven-day massive banquet. What, what David, exactly, that's what the sheep sounded like. What David wanted to do is say, hey, would, would you feed my entire army, Nabal? And for Nabal, this wouldn't be as outrageous of a request as it may sound right now. I mean, Nabal's the kind of guy who could pull this off. Remember, Nabal is filthy rich. He has a whole plantation. He has people who can make this happen. And so David sends 10 men to Nabal. And Nabal, you know Nabal. Just think of that. Think of Nabal (laughs) in your own life. Nabal, in his characteristically boneheaded and unsophisticated way, says, beat it. He says, beat it to David. Well, to David's men, but essentially to David. And remember, this is like giant slaying David. This is like, I've got an army behind me, David. This is, I'm soon to be king, David. You don't do that to David. At least David sure thought so. Because when word gets back to David that this is what Nabal said, beat it, who's David? Who cares? Something really disturbing gets triggered in David. Something messed up gets brought up in David. David basically, when he hears what Nabal had done, turns to his army and says, everybody, put on a sword, because today, people going to die. I mean, Nabal's going to die, his family's going to die, his plantation workers are going to die, his business is going to die, everybody associated with that dude is going to die. This is David, this is, play your heart, David. Something messed up, something sick and twisted gets triggered in David. It's, it's pretty bad news, and David's on his way doing what we all do. Have you, have you ever had the kind of visceral response that David is having with your Nabal? Like, I'm going to hit this person with my car right now. I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll be getting put in jail. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Have you ever had that thought? Like, has it ever gone to that to that degree for you, it has for me, I'm sorry. You know, where you just, you have that thought. You're like, I'm going to burn this person's house down. 
<laughs> gone. Like, I am that angry right now. I am that wronged. Like, if you know, maybe you don't struggle with anger. <laughs> maybe for you, it's an insane fit of jealousy. Maybe for you, it's a completely inappropriate yet obsessive sense of lust. Whatever it might be and whatever person triggers that sick and twisted stuff that gets brought up in us, that's the kind of thing that got triggered in David. Do you have these kind of messy responses to people? Now remember, remember that Nabal, though he's a fool, is married to Abigail. And I really hope you know Abigail. Because Abigail is the hope in this story. And it's the hope for us. She's the hope for us. Abigail is the voice of truth. And she's the voice who reminds us who we are and who we're becoming. That's who Abigail is. I was a sophomore in college when I was on my top bunk. Really, I had an idea in my head of where I was going. And nothing was going to change that. Um, although the plans weren't working out all too well. Um, God was kind of off the radar. I kind of say it like this. God was kind of like wallpaper for me back then. Great to know he's there. Beautiful coloring, but all not a difference maker. That, that's what God was for me my sophomore year in college. But to hear my, this guy, my roommate, on the bottom bunk start to talk about God in a way that no peer had ever talked to me about God before. Real casual, real genuine just asking questions, like, have you ever thought about God? And I'm like, what? Like, no, one, no one's asked me that. Not, not, like, not like, a, like a preacher has, but not like a person like you. And that, that just got me thinking. Like, that question alone got me thinking about who I am and who I was becoming and my place in potentially a bigger story. That's, that's the voice of Abigail, and maybe, and I hope you know Abigail. My assumption is that if you're here today, you do, because Abigail might be the voice of your grandmother who is telling you stories about Jesus at bedtime. Abigail may be your dad who you saw his commitment to his faith community, and it caused you to think, hey, maybe his commitment means something. Maybe his commitment means that there's a bigger story that I can be a part of. Maybe, maybe Abigail for you is a long dead author who you read but whose profound insight into life and to people got you thinking about your place in the bigger story, right? Or a small group, a group of people, or a church. Point is, Abigail does this for us. Abigail gets us thinking about who we are, and Abigail gets us thinking about who we're becoming, and in David's story, in David's story, Abigail acts quick. I mean, the girl gets her stuff together, right? She puts together a meal that would put a Presbyterian potluck to shame, right? And she caters this meal. She sends this meal ahead of her. It says, go to David and appease the first request. Like, get his people fed. She knows he's hangry. And she says, I gotta, I, that's, that's step one. Step two is I'm going to follow in route. And when, da when Abigail gets to David, she gives, she gives the best speech. I'll say this seriously. She gives the best speech in David's story. So listen to the word of the Lord, which is also, which is also the speech of Abigail. 
First Samuel 25, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey, fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in my ear, in your ears, and hear the words of your servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certain for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles for the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If anyone should rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord, your God. But the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from a hollow of a slain. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause for grief, no pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for having saved himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. It's a pretty sophisticated speech. Abigail's speech, but what I want to point out is some things she does really well. First, and this is for us, this is why the voice of Abigail is so powerful. First, she gets to David and she meets him right where he's at, right? You're hungry? Well, actually, you're hangry. Let me appease that. And by the way, I hear you. Let me be the one to say I'm sorry. I can see that you're mad. She meets David right where he's at. I understand. I hear you. I hear you. The second thing she does is Abigail recalls David's past. David, you're chosen. David, you're going to be king. You're anointed, remember? David, God is for you. Everybody knows that. The third thing she does is she reminds David of not just who he is in light of God's story, but who he's becoming, David's future. Like, David, the plan is for you to become king. You will rule Israel. And lastly, the thing that Abigail does so well is Abigail reminds David that, and this is where, this is where, the, uh, this is where the advice comes in. David, don't let this thing be a regret as you are becoming who God has called you to become. That's so beautiful. I'm sorry. I hear you. I'm going to meet you where you're at. Remember who you are. Remember who you're becoming. And don't let this be a regret. Don't let this situation be the thing that you're going to have to remember as God is calling you to become what only you can become. Folks, that's the gospel. 
That's the gospel according to Abigail and according to Christ because Christ meets us where we're at. Christ calls us beloved. God calls us beloved through Christ. God invites us into a story through Christ and God keeps us from evil in Christ. And so Abigail is really spelling out for David what all of us need to hear. This voice that reminds us that we are part of this big story and that these things, these outrageous and visceral responses that get triggered in us can only be can only be retrained or re-navigated or changed in light of what God has called us to become, who God has called us to become. But that's a big story, and it takes an Abigail to remind us of that. It takes Abigail. So who is Abigail for you? Well, we know who Nabal is. But, like, we need more than one Abigail. We need lots of Abigails. And I love David's response. See, David's response is what separates David from a king like Saul. Saul's just, he's going crazy, and the more he's reminded of his failure, the more Saul goes deeper and deeper into his own, into his own guilt. But David looks at Abigail and says, you're the godsend today. You stopped this. You stopped this. God has sent you to me today. And I love David's response because he goes on and he basically says, look, not just to Abigail, but to God, you're right. I'm wrong. This needs to be addressed. This needs to change. Imagine if all our messy networks in life, all the people we're connected with, aren't just part of God's plan in some general and vague kind of sense, but are there, even the Nabals, precisely to trigger in us what needs to be addressed by the gospel. Right? What if all the people, the coworkers, the family members, the stuff that the nasty and messed up and messy stuff that we'd rather not talk about or even bring to God, what if that stuff is precisely what needs to be addressed by the voice of Abigail, by the voice of Christ? That's my assumption today, is that by identifying Nabal in our lives, we've also identified what needs to be addressed by Abigail. And that's why Nabal and Abigail are both the godsend for David. Because David's got to deal with this. David's called to be king. And we are called to be representative of God's people, the church. So this stuff, this stuff, we have to recognize that it exists not just to make us feel bad, but to help us recognize where God may be at work and calling to attention the stuff in us that is for sure disgusting. Stuff we've learned from past relationships and past hurt. And man, oh man, if you're the church today, I hope that even if that's not a reality for you, that at least you're doing that for your kids. You're the voice of Abigail, who's like, let me be the first to say I'm sorry. Let let me remind you that you're beloved. Let me remind you that you're called to become something that only you can become. And now, by the way, don't let this situation be a regret. Imagine if that was the gospel we imparted to our children every time they faced something that caused a visceral response in them. Or imagine if we did that for people who got hurt by the church or people who have been hurt by their family. I hope, I hope the weight of that, I hope you feel that with me today. And I hope that the David story, though it's messy, and though this is one messy king, 
can call us and can call to attention the stuff that only the gospel of Jesus, and in this case, the voice of Abigail, can address. Will you pray with me? God Almighty, so much of the time the stuff in my own life that gets triggered as a result of people is, is disgusting. It's not good. And I thank you. And I speak for all of us. I know that's true for not just me. It's a human problem. And, I, and I, I pray for all of us, as that stuff comes up, may it be an opportunity to somehow get you involved. And may we either hear or be the voice of Abigail in our culture, in our church, in our different networks. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.